Amen. Great. You guys can have a seat. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, we're so glad that you did that. And so we, we started off a little bit by reading the Lord's Prayer. How many of you guys learned the Lord's Prayer as a kid? Most people, like I, I got an embarrassing story to tell about that. You know, when I was raising my kids as a, as a pastor's kid, I didn't really want them to feel like the pressure of being a pastor's kid. So sometimes I kind of neglected to teach them some really important things like the Lord's Prayer. And so my sons were playing basketball, middle school basketball at public school. And the very first game, the coach had them join hands to say the Lord's Prayer. And there was one kid that didn't know it. And it was the pastor's kid. So we fixed that later. Uh, so talking about the Lord's Prayer is a little painful for me, but I'll get over it. You know, we, we learned the Lord's Prayer. And, and there's something about the Lord's Prayer that we probably overlook if we're not careful. And, and Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them to pray. Now, there's a lot of things they could have asked to teach them. They could have asked, Jesus, teach us how to heal people. Because that would have been super helpful. They probably had relatives that they, you know, could have healed, friends they could have healed. You could have even made some money probably, pretending to be a doctor. You know, they could have, he could have asked, they could have asked Jesus to teach them how to multiply food from just a little bit to a lot. Teach them how to raise the dead. Like, wouldn't that be pretty awesome? But that's not what they asked. They asked Jesus to teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And I think the reason why is they saw this vital connection between Jesus and his heavenly father, between Jesus and God, this way that he talked, this way that he expressed himself. And in that prayer, when Jesus is teaching them this vital component, this one thing that they asked him to teach them, he talks about forgiveness more than anything in the prayer. Did you notice this? Like he doubles down on forgiveness. He says, teach us, you know, forgive us of our debts, our sins as we forgive others. And then after the prayer is over at the end, he says something to the effect of God, if you don't, if you don't forgive people, if you don't forgive people, then God's not going to forgive you. So you got to forgive them the way your heavenly father has, has forgiven you. And I think the reason why Jesus did this is he knew we'd have a problem with forgiveness. Amen, somebody? Like we struggle with forgiveness, especially in our culture. Like, like think about it. If, if there's an offense, if they find out something you've done wrong, what do they do? They're going to cancel you, not forgive you, not, not, not give you any grace, but, but you're going to be canceled. And so Jesus talks about this idea of forgiveness. And I believe that that that. that our inability to understand forgiveness, I mean, it's the greatest obstacle to us understanding and appreciating and living in life that God has given us. It's the greatest obstacle that gets in our way of, of our contentment. It's the greatest obstacle to our happiness. It's the greatest obstacle to our hope. It's the greatest obstacle to our direction. You know, the Bible teaches that when we lack forgiveness, we live without hope. When we lack forgiveness, we live without direction. We wake up one morning and we're like, how did I get here? And it may not even be that there's a specific thing that, you, you, that comes to mind when I talk about forgiveness. For a lot of people, there are. Like how many of you, like, you know, right now, I, I need God to forgive me of this thing right here. How many of you know specifically? Yeah, nobody really wants to raise your hand. But yeah, come on, right? That was a little awkward. Uh, you know, I mean, I get it, right? I mean, I, and I'm raising my hand. I'm first. Like I could tell you. I could tell you the things. And so if this, when we, don't, when we don't understand how God forgives us, and we, 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 we live a life that's in the kiddie pool of life. We never really experience the freedom that God has for us. You know, and, and it looks a little bit like this. Have you ever said this to yourself? Have you ever said, 
you do something, you're like, I'm so stupid. Anybody? Anybody ever said that? Guys in the room, has this ever happened to you? Like some of you guys who are not handymen around the house, has, has this ever happened to you? You're like, your goal in life has to just been to earn enough money to pay somebody to fix the things that break at your house. And so when something happens, you're like, oh, I want to do this. There's something in me that wants to fix this problem. And so you know you have all the answers because you got YouTube. <laughs> and you go to YouTube and inevitably there's just one little thing that they leave out. There's just one little screw that they don't tell you how to replace. There's just one little, you know, thing that they don't. And then so you, you get to the end, it doesn't work. You actually end up spending, instead of the 30 minutes that it says it's going to take, you've been there for three days. <laughs> and you're like, well, I'm so stupid. Have you ever been driving somewhere and you miss a turn? You're like, I, I, I can't even get to the grocery store. Like, what's the deal? Like, and then, and then sometimes we may not, we may not say I'm so stupid, but you know what we say is like, your co-pilot is so stupid. Any, any marriage has ever done that? You're not married anymore, are you? <laughs> and then, and then if, if we're following Google Maps, here's what we do. We'll be like, Google Maps always gets it wrong, even though Google Maps gets hundreds of millions of people to places every day, right? And we're like, ah. And so we have this inferiority complex. We say, I'm so stupid. Man, I'm such an idiot. And it's this voice that plays over and over again in our mind. And we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know, we don't know how much it's holding us back. And listen, guilt doesn't work, does it? Guilt doesn't work. Like some of you grew up in Catholic school. You've been guilty your whole life. You know guilt does not work. Blaming somebody else does not work. And we are our own worst enemy, aren't we? Like at the end of this message, some of you guys are just going to think it's awesome. That, you, you're not very smart. But you guys are going to think, some of you are going to come to the end. You're going to give up some stuff at the end. And I promise you at the end, you could give me a list of things that you loved about the sermon and a list of things that you didn't. And my list would be longer of the things that I could have fixed and done better. Why? I'm my own worst enemy. And you are too. Where is that coming from? How do we get rid of that? Well, I was thinking about it. I, I just remembered this quote uh, from the legend of Bagger Vance, literally, while I was, while I was uh, on the front row. Because one of the things that we try to do with, with these thoughts that we have, with these memories that we have is, man, we'll, we'll, we'll try to medicate them. We'll, we'll try to achieve, to kind of cover up our insecurities and as I was thinking about medicating, I was remembering the story of Randolph June and Legend of Bagger Vance. Anybody here seen Legend of Bagger Vance? If you haven't, you should watch it when you get home this afternoon. Wait till the sun goes down. The weather's too nice to be inside. But, but, but it, Randolph June was this golf hero, and he had a, he'd had some wounds that happened. He went to war. All his friends died. So he's got all this baggage he's carrying around. Maybe, maybe like you. And so they go to find him out on the outskirts of town. And, of course, they're drinking really heavy. And so the question on the table, Juna says, is how drunk is drunk enough? And he says the, the answer is that it's all a matter of brain cells. He says, that's right, Hardy. You see, every drink of liquor you take kills a thousand brain cells. That's not really scientifically accurate, by the way. I'm just letting you know. He says, he says that doesn't matter much because we've got billions of them. And first... The sadness cells die, so you smile real big. And then the quiet cells go, so you just say everything real loud for no matter, no reason at all. He says, that's okay, that's okay, because then the stupid cells go, so that everything you say is really smart. 
He says, finally, finally come the memory cells. These are tough to kill. And we've all experienced that. We know. And, and the reality is that, that if you don't let go of your past, if you don't let your past die, then it won't let you live. It won't let you live. So what does it look like to live in the forgiveness that God offers? Like, how does that change me? How does it change how I think? How does it change how I believe what I believe about the future? So that's what we want to talk about today. Next week, we're going to talk about how we need to forgive other people. But today we want to talk about how does God forgive us? Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 36. This is a parable. You know, a parable, as we talked a little bit about last week, is a story with a point. It's a story with a point. And so Jesus is going to, we're going to get a real life parable. We're going to see kind of this display of his grace and his love and his forgiveness. And then he's going to tell a story to help illustrate how we should think about it. So in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says this. It says, one of the Pharisees, now let me just frame it up. A Pharisee is a religious leader. A Pharisee is, is one who, who prides themselves on following the rules, right, on not sinning or at least not admitting that they sin. Everybody would have looked at them. They had a very, very high reputation, a very good reputation in the community for being moral and for being one who's just going to pursue the things of God. So, so one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house. He reclined at the table. And so in, in this culture, the way they would eat, it would have been a very low table, and they would have literally reclined, probably laying on one side, maybe had their head in their hand. And so he, Jesus would have been there. And then in, in the implication of this, there's a lot of important people there, right? Like there's a lot of leaders in the community who were there. There's a lot of religious leaders. There's a lot of political leaders from the city. They've come, and they've heard about Jesus. They've heard a little bit about him because he's got a pretty big reputation at this point. He's got a pretty big following. So he goes, and it says, Behold, a woman of the city... Who was a sinner? Now, I think a lot, if you've been around church, you know you have to say you're a sinner, right? Am I right? Like, you know this? Now, now when it says this about this particular lady, she, she didn't just get a speeding ticket. She, she, she committed some pretty significant sins. More than likely, she's a prostitute. But, but here's the thing about it. Her reputation had preceded her. The reason why she can be labeled as a sinner in this, in this story is because everybody knew it. Everybody knew her name. Everybody knew where she lived. Everybody knew what she'd been involved in. Everybody talked about her. She comes walking down the street. They would say, there goes Bernadette, right? I mean, they knew. They knew exactly what she'd done. It said, this woman of the city who was a sinner, and it said when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. That's very expensive, very expensive. It says she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She, she began to wet his feet with her, with her tears. She wiped them with the hair of her head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, well, let me, let me just get that picture real quick. So Jesus is laying there, right? And you just see, can you imagine how many tears she cried to, for his feet to be completely wet that she could, that she could wash them? Like, what must she have done to cry that much? Then she takes her hair and she wipes his feet off just out of gratitude. And then she takes this very expensive jar of oil and anoints his feet. And everybody saw it. Man, it, it was one of those things in the South we would say, she was causing a scene, y'all. <laughs> everybody was looking. 
And then watch what happens with Simon. It says, when the Pharisee, his name is Simon, we'll find out that later in a second. When he said to himself, if this man, meaning Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, here, here's what's funny. So he's thinking, if, he, if Jesus knew who she was, she wouldn't let him do that. What Simon doesn't know is Jesus knows, hello? That's why he let her do that. Come on. And so it says he thought to himself, and then, and then Jesus answering said to him, wait a minute, I thought he said it to himself. Jesus is answering him? Like, isn't that scary? Like you're in a room, hey, hey, George, don't think that anymore, right? I mean, wild. And so Jesus answers him. And he said, Simon, I have some things to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. It's a certain money lender, right? A lender, someone who maybe, think of a, a banker, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, or you're looking at around half a million dollars. The other 50, so you're looking at a lot less than that. It says, when they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So you see the logical conclusion to this story. If someone over here owed a banker a half a million dollars, and then someone over here owed $5,000, you both, you both get forgiven the debt. You don't have to do anything for it. It's gone, just expunged, right? Kind of like a government program happens or something. You're going to be really grateful because you're going to be more grateful than this guy over here who just got forgiven $5,000. That would be our logical implication of that. And so Simon answers and says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon. You get the image here? He's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. He says, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Common customs. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, he, does, he doesn't minimize it. He doesn't dismiss them. doesn't say, hey, no big deal, I got it. There are many. He says, her sins that are many are forgiven, for she loved much. So he ties this level of forgiveness to her gratitude and her understanding of her magnitude of sin. And then he said this, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And what we could infer from this, if we're not careful, if we don't understand what we're going to talk about today, is that we could infer from this that because Simon was a Pharisee and Simon followed the rules and Simon tried to do good most of the time, that he didn't sin much. Therefore, he was going to love less. But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that all of us have the same magnitude of sin, but some of us realize it and experience freedom through it rather than judging people for it. So he goes on to say this. He says, those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who, who, who can even forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
And we have these two characters in this story and in this parable. And Jesus is not trying to say that Simon was good and she was bad. That Simon, ah, yeah, you you don't have many sins. You're not going to be very grateful. He's like, Simon, you have no capacity, no framework for exactly what is happening here. For exactly how powerful forgiveness is. Gratitude and grace are tied together. Now notice, notice Simon's response. It's judgmental, isn't it? Right, he's judging the woman because he's calling her a sinner. He's judging Jesus too, by the way. You notice this? Like he's going to forgive that? He's going to forgive her? Hey, hey, let me ask you this question. Hey, have you ever judged anybody? <laughs> are, are you judgmental? Hey, what about this morning? Like I do this for the hundreds of you. I evaluate what each of you is wearing and I judge it. That's pretty cool. Don't ever wear that again. <laughs> but you know how we do that? And here's what we do is, is we judge people. And sometimes it's, it's small. It's minuscule, right? Sometimes it's larger, like her, her lifestyle. But we judge people. And the reason why we do that, the reason why we do that is our own insecurity, right? We do that because we're insecure. Why? And what we don't realize and what Simon didn't realize is we do that because we haven't experienced forgiveness of what we've done. We haven't experienced it. We say we have, but deep down it hasn't settled into our souls. So we live with judgmentalism and we judge people and we walk into church. We're like, man, look at that car. Like I thought, I thought my car made me look important. Their car really makes me look important. I need to get that car. Or we're like, I can't believe they wore that, or I can't believe they said that, or I can't believe they did that. And we look at our neighbors and we look at our friends and we kind of rank ourselves. And what happens is judgmentalism turns into bitterness. That's what happens. And when you're bitter, your life gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. You know bitter people, don't you? Life is small. But people who, who live with gratitude, gratitude shines a light on the future. Gratitude helps us to move forward. Gratitude takes our small life and makes it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Only when we understand the implications of what it means to be forgiven. Listen, are you, are you judgmental or are you grateful? Are you grateful? Man, we have to learn what it means to be grateful because our hearts are on fire with forgiveness. Gratitude, gratitude is the gateway to the life that we've been looking for. Now, 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 why should we be grateful? Just want to, I'm going to talk about two things right here. We should be grateful. I'm going to paint a picture of the greatness of God, but also the gravity of sin. The greatness of God and the gravity of sin. You see, see when we forgive, it, it reveals how accurately we, we see God when we forgive. That, that's what it t- reaches into our hearts. And it, it's kind of this expression of what we believe about God. I want to just paint a little picture from scripture that rhymed. That was pretty cool. A picture from scripture um, about just the greatness of God and what that looks like. And just to help us begin to wrap our mind around it. We should every day relentlessly focus, tenaciously hold on to the greatness of God. We have to be in intentional about it because it doesn't come naturally to us we tend to reduce God to our size we reduce God to our problems we reduce God to what we see with the eyes not what is unseen 
But we have to relentlessly force ourselves to see the greatness of God. Watch this. In Psalm 147, 4, it says this. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. So there's billions of stars, right? Or maybe more. I don't know, some of you college students could probably help me out here. Are there more than billions? Do we know? No, billions. Okay. Um, Think about it. I can't even remember my kids' names most days. And God knows the names of the stars. He knows how far they are from us right now. He knows how far they are from each other. He knows how long they're going to live. And he has named them. Like, this is the God that we serve. Amen, somebody? Like, this is the God, this is the greatness of God, of the creator God. It goes on in Psalm 139. It says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Does that scare you? Searched me, does me, search me and know me. You know, when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. So when you walked in this morning and you sat down, he knew every fiber in your body that was helping you sit down. He knew what pain you were having in your lower back because you didn't sleep good. He knew what thoughts, he's known every thought you've had since you came in here. God is able to understand that and know that this is how magnificent and worthy and other and transcendent God is. It goes on in verse three, it says, you search out my path, my lying down, you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it all together. I don't even know what I'm about to say sometimes to you. God knows before we say it what we're going to say. Even the words we wish we could get back, God knows. It goes on to say, you hem me in behind and before me. You lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high I can't attain it. Where would I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? Where are we going to go that God's not there? Where are we going to go that God hasn't already been there? Where are we going to go that God hasn't created is what David is saying. He says, if I ascend to heaven, there you are. If I make my bed in Sheol and hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. So if I'm like a seagull and I just start flying out over the open ocean, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will uphold me. If I say the darkness will cover me and the light around me is going to become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. This is the magnitude of God. This is the God that we're talking about, the creator God, the God who is providentially over everything, over our circumstances, over the cosmos. And it it goes on to say in the end, it says this at the end of the Bible. Here's what it says about, about God. It says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Everything. And he's worthy. Amen, somebody? He's holy. He he is other. And it requires a relentless pursuit to understand and to hold on to how big he is. When the in the mornings, when I get up, I I, I walk out and as the and as the sun begins to rise, I walk to the front door and just watch it unfold to remind me of how big God is. Right now, as I've been speaking, over 5 million babies have been born. God did that. We didn't even think about it. Right now, there's a sunrise and another sunrise and another sunrise and another sunrise and another sunrise throughout as God just continues to perpetuate the beauty of a sunrise over and over and over again. This is the God that we serve. and He's not to be trifled with. 
but he is so good. And he is worthy of our continued, relentless, tenacious focus to tell ourselves, God, you're, you're great and you're worthy of worship. He is the highest good and he is for us. Listen, we can't escape this fact. He, could, he is the highest good and he is for us. Now be clear, God's for God first. That's good for us. But God is for us. God's number one play, forgiveness. Number one. Think about this. If you were to meet Jerry Seinfeld, his number one play, tell you a joke. If you were to meet Taylor Swift, her number one play, she'd see a song about a bad boyfriend. <laughs> you meet God, number one play, for Forgiveness. That's what he's about. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, Paul writes these words. He says, in him, meaning in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. I'm going to talk a little bit more about redemption. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in him, in heaven and on earth. Like God's great plan is that through his forgiveness, everything is united in him. This is his, this is his first play. You see, God decided ahead of time that he was going to forgive. And when, before creation happened, God knew that hum, humans would sin, that we would sin. And I can get into how that happened in another, at another time. But he knew. And before we ever sinned, God had a plan in place. When Adam and Eve sinned and everything was good, God had in place a plan. And the story of the Bible is a story of God forgiving people. The story of God working his redemption so people could have life. So God of working his forgiveness so that we could live in freedom. God decided ahead of time that he would forgive sins you haven't even committed yet. This is the God that we serve. Have you ever decided anything ahead of time? Have you ever just decided ahead of time something you were going to do? Like when you get married, like you decide ahead of time some things that you're going to do. When you go shopping, you're supposed to decide ahead of time how much you're going to spend, right? Like, this happened to me just this week is wild. And so it's a, it's a good story, uh, but it was also a, it tells you some things that my wife and I decided ahead of time. And so I've got these two dogs. I've got two golden doodles. Any, any dog lovers in the house? Any cat lovers in the house? Just kidding, don't raise your hand. Um, so I've got two golden doodles. I've got a, a 10 and a half year old. She's almost 11. Her name's Allie. And Allie's awesome. She's a super dog. And so um, then I've got another... Uh, Year and a half, Charlie. Charlie's still a work in progress. And so um, my son was in town. He's got another one. And so it looked like we have like a golden doodle club or something. So we, we take our dogs over and we're in a field and we're throwing the ball up in the woods and they run and get it and come back. And we're just having a lot of fun. And I turn around and look and I notice that my 10-year-old is sitting back in the field and her left back leg is just straight up in the air. Like she is hurt. Now here's something you need to know about my wife when it comes to taking dogs to the vet, like my, my wife grew up in the woods, right, y'all? And so her dad didn't always think the vet was necessary, okay? Um, she had a dog named Blue when she was a kid. 
Blue got bit by a rattlesnake in the face and her dad just gave him some Benadryl, you know, everything was good. And so, um, so that's just not, I love vets. If you're a vet, we love you. Um, we do take our dogs to vet, but you know, it's gotta, it's gotta matter. <laughs> and so, uh, legs lifted up. I'm like, oh, this, this, this is not good. So we kind of get her in the truck. We drive back home. And after I get my dog home, I noticed not only her back leg, but now her front leg, she's kind of leaning against the wall. She can't put weight on either of them. Oh, that's not good. Now, my, one of my neighbors is a vet, and so we call her over. Like, hey, could you take a look at our dog? Um, first of all, are you going to charge us for this home visit? Or, uh, <laughs> I'm cheap, y'all. Now, and, so, uh, <laughs> and so she begins to look, and she notices that the front, the back leg, I'd already noticed that her back paw, it was bloody and gross. Something had happened. Like, it was, it was nasty. And the, and the front leg looks fine, but she begins to look, and sure enough, right on her forearm, two little puncture wounds, my dog's been bit by a snake. So I, I'm kind of sitting there with the dog and I called Debbie in and my wife, my wife says, you may need to take her in. I'm like, wow, like that is the Lord right there. <laughs> and so, so we kind of get the dog ready to go. Now, now here's what I know. I'm taking the dog to the after hours clinic and my wife and I have had the conversation already. We've had this years ago. What is the top amount that we'll spend on the dog? Like, has nothing to do with my love for dogs, has everything to do with my limited resources, y'all. And so I already knew going, man, I hope, I hope, I hope she doesn't hit that, that top number because then we got decisions to make. So I take my dog to the vet. The vet comes in real quick. She's bitten by a snake twice. Once in the back, once in the front. Looks like it was a copperhead. Our, my favorite snake. Yours too, right? You love those. And so he's going to get the estimate. I was praying really hard. Not for my dog to get better, but for the estimate to be well below the number, okay? And it wasn't. No, I'm kidding. It was. It was, it was below the number, right? And so we had decided that ahead of time. And, and that's kind of a funny story. There are things that we decide ahead of time. Hey, let me tell you something. God has decided ahead of time he's going to give us a path to forgiveness. He's going to give us a path to leave behind some baggage that we hold on to leave behind the insecurity, to leave behind the bondage, to leave behind the mistakes, to leave behind the guilt, to leave behind the shame, to leave the regrets behind. God's given this ability to do that. Now, we can't understand that until we understand the greatness of God. But we also have to understand the gravity of sin. We can't minimize it. And sin is massive. It's not just some little indiscretion. It's not just a mistake. Man, sin has cosmic ramifications. Just think about it. When God decided beforehand to forgive us, he decided that he was going to send his son to die for us. He doesn't have limited resources. He's got everything that we need. And this is what God did. Now, sin is so massive that we've got to get a handle on how big it is. You know, it, and just for, in a small snapshot in creation, what we know is that the reason why the world doesn't work the way it's supposed to, think hurricane, pipelines don't work, whatever. The reason why is because sin is in the world. Like, I don't know that there was one specific sin that someone committed and now God sent a hurricane. That's not how it works. But because it's broken, the world is broken. Fundamentally, it's very fabric. That's the result 
of sin. So we have to learn how can we, how can we magnify and understand the gravity of sin and not dwell in the effects of sin? How, how can we do that? We have to understand how big it is. We can't, God can't allow sin in his presence. Sin, in its simplest definition, is missing the mark. Like that God has created the world, and there is a way the world works. And we, we can say as much as we want to, we don't like the way the world works, but gravity is always going to be in play. The world works a certain way, and God has set it up that way. And when we don't operate under those that understanding that God's at the center, then that's when sin happens and our relationship with God is broken. Now, one of the things that we like to do with sin is we just, we just like to maybe ignore it, say, yeah, yeah, God's forgiven it and kind of try to get past it. And we think if we're not thinking about it, then maybe it doesn't exist. Sometimes we diminish it. Say, ah, it wasn't that big of a deal. It, it was a big deal. The fabric of the world changed. Everything about redemption was set in motion. And we can't, we can't pretend that it's no big deal. We can't minimize it. We can't trivialize it. We, we all know deep down that something's wrong. Now we think it's out there many times, but the real problem's in here. That's why we look for Narnia and we can't find it. It's why we, you know, Frodo leaves the Shire and takes the ring with him. It's why the world doesn't work and the problem is in here. And there has to be some solution to that. Like even Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, understood the magnitude and gravity of his own sin. Now, now, now Paul wrote the New Testament. Paul, the greatest church planter in history. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Even Paul said, I'm, I'm the worst. Like, and, and he's not counting his sins against others. He's just understanding and acknowledging the gravity of sin and how bad it is. We need to have a deep awareness of sin. Some people will minimize sin saying, yeah, I'm just living in sin. And that just betrays an understanding of how how incredibly egregious sin is because it has broken our relationship with God. And because of that, God knew there was only one, one way that he could solve that. There's only one way he could repair that, and that was by sending his son, Jesus. And this is obviously how we get forgiveness. And we know this idea of sin, right? Ever, ever lived in some shame before? Ever felt guilty for doing something before? Ever said something you wish you wouldn't have said? Ever, 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 ever been arrested for something you wish you wouldn't have gotten arrested for? That's every arrest, by the way, just saying. <laughs> and obviously as a pastor, I get to hear a lot of stories about what, from people about some of the deepest, darkest times in their life. But man, let me tell you this. I have seen some of the greatest healing, transformation, and bondage come off of people because they understood what it meant to be forgiven. Jesus came for that. And this is why, yeah, let's go. So two words that, that Paul is using here in Ephesians. He uses the word forgiveness. He uses the word redemption. Both of those words mean to be released from bondage by payment. So what we know is that because there's sin, God can't allow sin in his presence. There's got to be a payment for that. 
There's got to be some way that we're covered. And so Jesus come, he comes, he sheds his blood, he dies on the cross for us so that that is the payment for our sin and as if his blood washes us white as snow. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees Jesus' sacrifice. Listen, and we have, we have freedom to live in that. Man, we're released from the bondage of the past. And when we don't live in that, that's a statement not about our sin. Listen, listen, listen. When we don't live in that, it's not about our sin. It's not a belief about our sin. It's a belief about God's power to forgive. It's a faith statement when we don't live in forgiveness. It's a belief about how good we think God is. And it says that he lavished this on us. Like overwhelming, outpouring more than we could ever even begin to dream or imagine. Now there's this phrase I just want to throw out at you. And I want you to think about this phrase differently. I think a lot of us have heard this. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. We've heard this, right? And when we, when we think of that, we, we think it's a statement about how we think about God. But really, I'm just a sinner saved by grace is how we think about us. It's this, it's this attempt to be humble but if you think about that phrase, who is that phrase about? It's about me. And forgiveness isn't about me, it's about God. So when I say I'm just a sinner saved by grace, I am minimizing the work of God. Listen, I want you to think about that phrase differently. You are more than just a sinner saved by grace. You're the object of affection of the God of the universe. You're the object, you're the recipient of his son's death for your freedom. That's who you are. You're not just a sinner saved by grace. Like don't minimize the forgiveness that God offers us today. Man, let's think about it differently. Man, God is so great. He is so good and so powerful. He gives us forgiveness. Our sin is so bad and so heinous and so destructive. It ripped us away from our heavenly father. But his grace, man, brings us back together. Like what, where do you need forgiveness today? As you examine your life, man, if there was a videotape to play this morning of what you've done this week or maybe just today, like what would it play? What would it say? How would you see yourself? What would other people see? Man, would they see someone who's living in forgiveness? Man, would they see someone who's insecure, trying to achieve their dreams to cover over their insecurity and look like they have it together? Like, like what is it for you? Now, now, for some people, there's some big sin right now. You know what it is. And it's, as soon as we start talking about forgiveness, bam, it's right there. You know what it is. For other people, it's probably a little more way of life. It's how you view the world. The glass is half empty. I'm judgmental. I need to prove myself. I need to fit in. I drink too much to numb myself. But I want you to know Jesus died for every sin. Every sin. Hey, Jesus died. Jesus died for your affair. Jesus died for your abortion. Jesus died for your addiction. Jesus died for your lies. Man, Jesus died for your stealing. Jesus died for your selfishness. Jesus died for your pride. You can be forgiven. But guess what? You got to take it. You got to confess. You got to show that you take sin seriously. So I just want to take the next five minutes that we have together today and just give us all an opportunity to, to experience that forgiveness for whoever would need it today. To experience that release from the bondage and the thoughts, anxiety, the depression, the struggle that's holding us back.
So this is, this is what we're going to do. I'm going I'm to ask the band to come out. They're going to come out and lead us in a, in a song. And some of you, you just need somebody to pray for you today. Really simply. Like, if you follow Jesus and you've never had anybody pray over you, you are missing it. That is not the norm. And so we're going to have some of our staff members right here on the front for you to be able to come just so they can say a brief prayer over you today and so that you can experience forgiveness. Also, one of the things that our students do on Wednesday night is, man, they'll come here and they'll just kneel for a moment. And this is a time for you to be able to just do some work with God. You know, just ask him for forgiveness. Maybe you need to weep like the woman at Simon's house. Maybe that's you today. And right here is the place for you to be able to do it. So as they start to lead us, I'm going to pray for us. They're going to begin to lead us in worship. And then we're just going to have an opportunity just to respond to whatever it is God's doing in your heart this morning. Let's pray together. God, the gospel forgiveness of our sin is just mind-boggling. And it's gravity, but God, also in your grace. And I pray that in these moments, we could put some things behind us, put them back in our past that have haunted us for decades. Lord, that have haunted us, have continued to come up, have caused us to act in ways we never even connected to our lack of forgiveness, God. Our insecurity, our anxiety, Lord, our self-doubt, that reel that plays over and over and over and over in our mind. Do we fit in? The questions we ask ourselves. God, the things that we've agreed to that we'll never accomplish without you, God, that we'd be able to put those behind today and just walk in freedom, God. Lord, I believe that you're a God that gives freedom. I believe that that's why you came. I believe the story of the Bible is a story of redemption, a story of you leading people out of slavery into the promised land, into freedom. God, we just pray that now is that moment. In Jesus' name, amen. And again, we're going to have some of our staff along the front. I'd love for you to come join our students as they kneel. If you would, just stand together and let's worship.